The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 104.5 FM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and 107.7 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And as always, many things are going on in technology. Ransomware threatens our U.S. healthcare system. There have been over 59 hospitals that have been hit with ransomware in 2020, and the threat is growing each week. We'll talk more about that. Apple added a secret button to the iPhone with the last upgrade on iOS, to iOS 14. I'll talk about that secret button and how you can access it. Now, Facebook tried to stop the Hunter Biden story, but they failed to do it. They were not as effective at Twitter. It actually made it out. We'll talk about the statistics on the the Facebook distribution of that story. Today, we're also going to talk about how to Zoom like a pro, because everybody's using Zoom now. You really have to know how to do it. And in observation from the bunker, I'm going to talk about how to negotiate with people who you absolutely disagree with. I think in these trying times of political turmoil, those skills are really useful. And we're also going to feature the father of the digital computer, John Vincent Atanasoff. It's a big show today. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc, Jim, and the notable Mr. Big Voice. Notable. Notable. (laughs) Since we are in the middle of a pandemic, uh, I've been surfing the web a bit more than usual. I came across an interesting website that keeps track of the status of ice cream machines at every McDonald's. Really? Hang on a second here. Wait a minute. I had something special to play for that. Oh, here we go. Here it is. Hi, welcome to McDonald's. How may I help you? Hi, um, can I try the ice cream? No, the ice cream machine is broken. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, with that project of tracking this, would that be the kind of project that you would assign your students to do as part of their, uh, you know, as part of their practical work? Love the show. Your loyal listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, this is exactly the type of project that we have our students work on. It gives them real experience before they actually have a job. It's the kind of thing that employers love to see. So uh, what he's talking about, what Bob is talking about is a website called called McBroken. McBroken. (laughs) McBroken McBroken.com. I'm going on right now. You can go to McBroken.com and you can find everything I'm going to tell you. It's an ice cream tracking website. It was developed by 24-year-old software engineer Rashik Zahid, every McDonald's restaurant in the U.S. appears on a map as either a red dot or a green dot. Green means the ice cream machine is working. Red means that it's not working. 
It also displays some ice. It displays some ice cream statistics. At the time of the writing, 99.8 percent of the McDonald's ice cream machines were inoperable. It's not quite so good right now. 9.76 nationwide are currently broken. 9.76 percent. Oh yeah, that's not. And a quarter of them are in New York City. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Long now averages. he realized what it, what he did. Now this was such a clever app. He realized that. Whenever the ice cream machine goes down, you know, because you've got this mobile ordering system that you can do with McDonald's. So whenever the ice cream machine is down, employees have to go in and manually say that ice cream products are unavailable at that McDonald's. So they go in and they make the change. So what Zahid did very cleverly, he wrote a script where he orders an ice cream cone from every single McDonald's in the country. Now, that order, and he does that every 30 minutes. Now, the total cost of that order is $18,000. Oh, my God. <laughs> but he doesn't actually pay $18,000 because he didn't put a credit card in. He just sort of put it on his, uh, on his, uh, in his cart. And, but then he never finished the sale. And, of course, if you can't put it in the cart because it's unavailable, he knows it's a red dot. So he does that every 30 minutes, and then he posts this thing to the web. And I'll tell you, I've, I've been to that website. It's nicely done. It it'll, is. It'll, it'll cue in on exactly where you're located, and you'll never have to worry about whether you go whether the ice cream machine is working at your McDonald's. He launched it in the U.S. on October 22nd, and within, uh, and within, uh, you know, within days it had 200,000 users. The interesting thing, even the top brass at McDonald's like McBroken because it, it helped them track where the broken machines are. McDonald's VP of U.S. Communication praised the website within hours after it's launched. So check it out if you're an ice cream fan. I, actually, I like the chocolate sundaes there. It's when they go on sale for 50 cents. Uh, of course, because you are cheap, right? Exactly. Yes. Hey, and so, and, well, actually, I've got the mobile app. It tells me when those things are available. So... I'm going to check out McBroken.com to make certain that I don't do this thing. And, and he did this with a simple script. Anyone could have written this particular application who's done a bit of development. And these are exactly the kind of projects we love our, we love our students to work on. As a public gotta, service, I can tell as a public yes. service, I can tell you that the ice cream machines are currently out of uh, order at this certain key locations in the district. New York Avenue and Bladensburg, that's a big McDonald's. And the other over in Roslyn, that one's not working either right now. So if you if you need a, a you know morning ice cream cone, you're not getting it there. Or 14th and you, that one's down too. So um, McDonald's what got a great service. That is a great service. Yes, you know? well, I wish it add that as we should get McDonald's to sponsor a special segment every week, and we can check on the local uh, yes. ice cream machines. You know, Jim, I think they sh this should be added to the traffic report. I think that's a great idea. Well, you know, traffic's been lighter these days, so give us something to do. That's right. We got an email from Alice in Alexandria. Dear Doc and Jim, is there any way to schedule emails to be delivered at a particular time? I know that an email delivered first thing in the morning is more likely to be read. What options do I have? My current email client is Gmail. Alice in Alexandria. Well, Alice, good news. Gmail now allows you to schedule your emails for, for a particular time and date. The feature is really easy to use. Just open up, log into your Gmail account, write the email that you want to send, and then uh, there's a little arrow beside the send button. Don't, don't click send. 
push the arrow and a little drop down menu will come in and then it will say click and it'll say schedule. So you click on the schedule and then and a pop up will come up and it, it'll suggest times for you to schedule it or you could pick a time and date and you're done. And your email will go out exactly when you want it to go out and you don't have to worry about it. That's really a great, great feature. It is, yes. We got an email from Alex in Fairfax. I enjoy taking pictures and sharing them on Instagram and Facebook. I've been doing this as a hobby for years. Ten months ago, I started a blog on WordPress to try to make some money from all my photos. It's, it's always hard to monetize that. But, it's you know, impossible. It's always, it is possible. <laughs> The problem is I'm not getting much traffic from Google for all my photos. Is there something I can do to get the photos on my blog to show up in the Google image searches? Alex and Fairfax. Well, Alex, you have got to do some simple search engine optimization. Uh, I suspect you just posted the images without any surrounding text. And if there's no text for Google to figure out what the image is, it's not going to show up on anything. So one thing that you want to do that's very useful, Google does look at the name of the photo. So you might make it a very descriptive name for the photo. It could be like silhouette of geese walking along the beach. <laughs> dot JPEG. Okay, something like that. And if it's in the name of the photo, it's, it's really picked up by Google quickly. Now, Google also looks at the whole page, so you might, after, after the photo, you might, you might say, I just took this photo yesterday, I uh, got the silhouette of geese, I was there at Maui Beach, and, and talk something about it in the blog itself. And Google will pick that up, and especially when you get these long-form requests for a particular kind of photo, if you've got a lot of information your photo might come up right to the very top because you've got so much information to match somebody's search. Now, you've also got two other ways to add additional information. You've got the alternative text. Now, this is the text that doesn't show up anywhere, but it's in the background and buried in the HTML code. So when the alternative text, you want to describe the photo. And that that is basic, that was the original way that that, uh, that was used to identify um, the text in a picture. Alternative text, by the way, is also used for some of these um, uh, um, you know, accessibility programs where, it, where somebody can't see it, they, it reads the page to them. If you've got alternative text in there, that program, that accessibility program will read that text so the person listening to it will know what, what's in the picture. And finally, in the, uh, you can also add something called uh, a caption to the photo. And you basically click on the photo, and then you click on the pencil icon, and you reopen edit, and then you can add a description. So if you make a very descriptive name, you use alternative text, you have a caption, and you talk about the photo in the blog itself, that is going to have so much information that it's going to show up at the top of the uh, of the Google image searches. Well, best of luck with your blog, and I hope you make a few bucks. We got an email from Doug in Kansas City. Dear Tech Talk, I'm getting sales calls with my own phone number. That's weird. Yeah. How can spammers do this? It's very annoying. Perhaps are they, are they using my phone number to call other people? That would be double annoying. What can I do? Doug in Kansas City. 
Well, Doug, this is becoming a problem. Calling or texting someone and having another person's phone number show up is called spoofing. And it happens all the time. Now, there are a number of shady online services that make, make it extremely easy to spoof a phone number and trick the recipient into thinking the call or text is either from someone they know personally or from a local business. It really is. I mean, there are a lot of voice over IP clients. You can put in any phone number you want. The phone numbers aren't verified. You just pop it in and, and the phone company will just deliver that phone number for you without even questioning it. Now, there are rules, there are laws against this that uh, under the truth, they have a, they actually have an act, Truth in Caller ID uh, uh, Act. The FCC prohibits anyone from transmitting misleading or inaccurate caller ID information with the intent to defraud, cause harm, or obtain anything of value. But if you're not doing anything illegal, there's nothing against you spoofing a phone number. That's, it's not against the law to do it. You just can't do it for illicit purposes. And there's a fine of $10,000 for each violation. Mm. Now, the, the fact is, I don't really think they enforce this very much at all. Probably not. Uh, now, the good news is that if you are a, um, if you're a telemarketer, officially a telemarketer, you are not allowed to spoof a phone number at any time at all. And that's totally against the law. So there's not much you can do about this thing, but it is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. We got an email from John in Baltimore. I have internet through Verizon. That's, I've got a DSL, which is only 10 megabits per second, really slow, and it seems to get slower every day. <laughs> <laughs> I just bought a new desktop computer, and it has both a wired ethernet port and a wireless Wi-Fi card in it. Is there a way that I can combine those two network adapters to double my effective internet speed? Uh, going from my router, John in Baltimore. Well, John, unfortunately, that's not going to work. Your bandwidth is determined by the single connection between your router and the internet, and connecting two, um, two adapters to your router is not going to speed anything up at all. Sometimes uh, you can do compression to give an effective speed up, uh, and that may help, but many of the web browsers already do compression. Pictures are already compressed. So most everything is already compressed, so it doesn't buy you that much. But there are programs where you can you can connect to a a, a VPN. You 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 can make a VPN connection, and you can then have a VPN connection that does compression, and it may give you a little bit of a boost, but I don't think it'll give you too much of a boost. We got an email from Rajiv in New Delhi, India. Dear Tech Talk, I need to transfer some very large files. So they're around a gigabyte. What are my options? Enjoy the podcast in India, Rajiv. Well, India, Rajiv, as you know, a gigabyte file is too big to be an email attachment. So they, you, you basically have to use a cloud service, and then you send a link. That's basically what you do. You upload the giant file to uh, a server on the cloud, and you provide a link to that particular file. Now, there are a couple of ways to do that. Um, uh, at Stratford, we use Dropbox a lot. That's a cloud service, and we, up, you, we upload it to the Dropbox, uh, to our Dropbox account. And then you can actually uh, right-click on that file, and it will say Create Link. And it will create a link specifically for that particular file. And then you can simply take that link 
and you can paste it in an email and send a link to someone, and they can click on it, and they'll and they'll they'll pull up the file right away. Now the file is not encrypted. There's no password. It's sort of like security through obscurity. It's, it's kind of a complicated link. So it's you know I would not uh, I would not use this method for any kind of nuclear secrets, but just <laughs> simple simple file transfers work quite well. Now Dropbox, if you, the free account is 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 set to two gigabytes maximum for the free account. This is a one gig file, and you can just delete the file when you're done. So you can you, you can just use the free Dropbox account without a problem. Uh, I ended up I mean I'm paying a dollar ninety nine a month, and I've got now I've got now more storage in my Dropbox account. Now there's another program that we use quite often at Stratford. A lot of folks like it. It's called WeTransfer. This is completely free. You can basically uh, upload the file to the WeTransfer website, and uh, all you need is an email address and the file you want to share. And so then, then what you do is that you you upload it, and then you you can essentially then send a link to that file to as many people as you want. Now they'll allow you to share a file for up to two gigabits and uh, gigabytes in size. It's completely free. A lot of a lot of my international team uses WeTransfer. Now this is the 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 limitation. The file is only available for two weeks and then it's deleted, and then it's gone. Now the other limitation is that the WeTransfer um, files are not secured. Anybody can pretty much look at them if they if they want to look around. So never use WeTransfer when working with confidential documents, but either one of these cloud services will certainly allow you to transfer that large file. Listen, we love your email. We do. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. This is Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, 1077 FM HD2, southwest of Washington, and in Loudoun County at 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature John Vincent Atanasoff. John Vincent Atanasoff is known as the father of the digital computer. He created the first electronic digital computer. He didn't get credit for it in the beginning, but ultimately people discovered that he was the guy. John Vincent Atanasoff was born in Hamilton, New York, October 4th, 1903. After he was born, his father accepted a position as a senior electrical engineer in Florida, and they moved to Brewster, Florida. Now, uh, you know, that's where John went to grade school in Brewster. He went to the Brewster, Florida grade school. And that's where he started to get his first understanding of electricity. His house, you know, was one of the first houses in the um, in the area to get electricity. And so he was wow. actually running the wiring in the house. Oh, that's scary. He was learning electricity. Actually, Jim, you know, I, 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 my dad installed the kitchen when I was like in grade school. Uh-huh. And I wired the kitchen. I'm thinking back to myself. I can, I can he, see that. He took, he took a chance. What, when, when you I said... When you said he was first uh, getting familiar with electricity, I thought maybe he jammed a fork in the toaster. That would be an that would be an op- eye-opening that experience. Be, that would be uh, certainly an eye-opening experience. Yeah. Well, when I when I did that wire, you know, I wanted this wiring to really last. You know how normally you just twist the uh, the uh, the copper wires together. Yeah. I soldered every one of those connections. How old were you? I was about nine. You're and, kidding and me. I was, I was putting in the, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the 220 and the, in the, you know, I was wiring, I was doing the whole kit. I did, did the whole kitchen. And the house uh, didn't burn I, down? No, I, I'm, I'm thinking back on it. I, I think my dad was crazy <laughs> to let me do that. Hey, he but, was. You know, but here's the deal. I didn't charge a penny. You know, it was really, it was really a bargain basement deal. <laughs> so, so cheapness runs in the family then? Yeah, I, I was really, uh, I don't think I, I don't think that was really a good judgment on his part, but but actually I was pretty good at it. I did a very high quality job. When did you start? It. When did you start taking things apart like radios? How old were you when you started doing stuff like that? I was always taking. I don't. I can't remember. I've just always taken stuff wow. apart. Cool. You know, just it just. I'm always interested in how things work. So and so was John Vincent Atanasoff. Yeah. Now now what happened was his father uh, got a slide rule when he was nine years old. And John was fascinated with the slide rule, how you, because you know, the slide rule is all logarithms. And if you multiply two, the log of two numbers, you basically add the two logarithms together. So you simply can add numbers up on a logarithm and you can, you can get a final answer. You can multiply big numbers, divide big numbers. And he was fascinated how this worked. So he started learning mathematics to figure out how this slide rule worked. And he started learning trigonometric functions. He started, uh, of course, logarithms. That's what the, log- that's what the slide rule is based on. Then he moved quickly to differential equations and many other fairly difficult mathematical concepts. So he was actually a mathematics whiz once he got started on it. In 1990, he entered the Mulberry High School. And, uh, and he had been studying so much already, he graduated from high school in two years with straight A's. He just blew through that high school right away. In 1921, he was accepted at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Now, 
the reason I like this guy, he wanted to get a degree in theoretical physics. You know, that's why he's sort of a kindred spirit. That's but, your thing. But uh, University of Florida did not have theoretical physics. They, so they so he ended up majoring in electrical engineering. It's, it's the best he could get. 1925, four years later, he, he graduated uh, with a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering, again, getting all straight A's. In 1926, he, uh, he, he graduated from Iowa State College with a master's in mathematics. He could finally start, you know, start moving toward his mathematics. He got a, um, he got a, um, uh, a, a scholarship there to go to Iowa State College. Now, after his, but he, and he also got married while he's working on his master's degree. And after his first child was born, he said, well, I better get started on my, you know, my real degree. So he moved to Madison, Wisconsin, and he enrolled in a doctoral program. He finally made it in theoretical physics. And his dissertation was on the dielectric constant of helium. Now, that's, that's a real good topic there at a cocktail party. Uh, right. And so, he, and so he had to do a lot of computation for this. By the way, the dielectric constant describes how materials interact with light. So, you know, when light enters a piece of glass, it's bent a little bit, and the amount of the bending is determined by the dielectric constant. The dielectric constant is related directly to the speed of light as it goes through that material. And so he had to compute this dielectric constant, and so that was his first experience with serious computing. But back then, he didn't really have computers. So he was doing all the calculations on his dissertation with a Monroe calculator. Huh. Now, now this was the best calculator you could get at the time. But you can imagine, you got to punch in everything, pull down the thing, punch in everything. It was slow, and it was tedious. And he says, you know, this is... This is not very efficient. There has got to be a better way. And that's what motivated him to start later on to start working on developing a digital computer. Now, he finally received his Ph.D. in 1930. And he accepted an offer from Iowa State College where he got his master's degree as an assistant professor in mathematics and physics. I guess they wanted a dual, a dual uh, professorship there. And he immediately started working on devices to make a computer. So he worked on vacuum tubes, and he was using radio signals, various kind of electronic devices to create an advanced computing machine. I mean, he was, he was working on both analog as well as digital ideas. Now, he, decided, he basically decided an analog computer was just too slow, and the accuracy depends on the components themselves. Whereas if you're digital, see the zero or one, you've got absolute accuracy. So he, he decided that digital was probably the way to go, but he, but he just, see, there had never been, I mean, there had been mechanical computers that, uh, that were digital, where, where you're flipping relays, but there had never been something that was totally electronic that was digital. He was like inventing this out of whole cloth. And he was working on it and working on it, and he was having, uh, uh, you know, he was having trouble really, uh, really doing this thing. And, he, and he, got, he got frustrated one day. He said, I have got to solve this problem. So he just, in his frustration, just got in the car. He said, I'm just going to drive somewhere. He just started driving. And he drove 200 miles, you know, perplexed on how to design this computer. And, he find, and then he stopped at this, uh, at this roadhouse. 
you know, and it's a bar right. by the road. And he sat down there, and he'd ordered a bourbon. Actually, um, they said he ordered a bourbon, but I'm thinking it could have been more than one bourbon. I'm thinking you're right. And he just started there drinking and thinking. And all of a sudden, uh, after a few bourbons, he his stress was gone, and something clicked. And he just started getting these ideas on how to design the computer. And the idea just started pouring out. So he just, you know, he, he went to the proprietary, he said, look, I need some napkins here, I need a pencil, and he just started writing down circuits on how to design this digital computer. And he basically came up with the whole concept, you know, that night in the roadhouse. So then he, um, he went back to Iowa State with this great idea, you know, laid out on a napkin, or several napkins. And he applied for a grant from Iowa State College to build this computer. And uh, the Iowa State College gave him a grant, a, a, a huge grant of $650. That was it. $650 to build this digital computer. That was a lot of money back then, Doc. It probably was a lot of money back then. It, it was probably equivalent to $10,000, I would say, mm -hmm. in today's dollars. But... Uh, and so the first thing he did was hire a very bright electrical engineering student, Clifford Berry. And so from 1939 to 1941, they began work on developing and improving the computer. And they called it, because Berry also came up with a lot of good ideas too, they called it the Atanasoft Berry Computer, ABC. How creative. Atanasoft Berry Computer, ABC, as it was later called. And uh, and it was and so they basically got this thing working. Now it was hardwired to solve only one problem. It wasn't. It, and so it and that basically they they designed this thing to solve a series of linear equations. They put in 29 linear equations. There were 29 variables, 29 equations, and then you have to calculate the value of each variable. So anybody that knows algebra, you know how you do that. You take you take two of the equations, you subtract them, eliminate a variable, and then you take that that particular um, uh, equation, subtract from another one, eliminate another variable, and you keep eliminating variables. So you're down to one variable, and you know what one variable is, and then you can substitute back in and get all the variables. It's, it's like a common method of algebraic solutions. So they actually programmed this things to do that elimination of variables technique on these 29 linear equations. Now, it was not the von Neumann architecture. Now, the von Neumann architecture actually had a stored program architecture where you could actually input a different program and it would do something else. In their case, the program was hardwired in the circuitry, so it was not a von Neumann architecture. On the other hand, it had several extremely important attributes that made it the first digital computer. Number one, it was digital. Uh -huh. It only used binary numbers, zeros and ones. So, and they basically had um, vacuum tubes or thyristors that served as switches, either on or off. It all, the second thing is, it did all the calculations in electronics and used no mechanical switches and no wheels. It was not mechanical at all. And third principle in the book, it actually did do some feature of the von Neumann architecture. It separated the memory area 
from where the computations were done. They were done as separate areas, and that was that's part of the von Neumann architecture. Now, he actually invented a very clever memory technique. He'd use 1,600 capacitors, and they would, they would uh, be charged up, and if it was above threshold, it was a one. If it was below threshold, it was a zero. But of course, capacitors gradually leak, and then they, they, have, to, they have to be reset. So what he did, he took these capacitors and put them on a drum, and he rotated them once per second, and every second, they would reset the capacitor value. So that is very similar to the concept that we have in dynamic RAM, where it's, where it's only now it's an integrated circuit. You've got an array of capacitors, and you keep refreshing those capacitors. And that's the same principle that we use in, in today's computers, except it's all done in solid state. He had 230, 289 vacuum tubes in his digital computer. Mm. He used 31 thyrotrons. That's, a, that's also a nonlinear device similar to so that used like, like, use as like a transistor. Now, it weighed 700 pounds. Jeez. Okay, so it was a big guy. And it was about the size of, an, of a desk. That was how big it, it But it had, it used punch card input. And the output was a panel display that would display the number. Now, he invented all of these elements out of whole cloth, and it worked. Then, this was in World War II, then it, they finished the project, and he, and he went off to serve in World War II. And he, and he asked the university, he says, hey, guys, why don't you file a patent on this thing so, you know, somebody doesn't steal the ideas. It turns out there were people from uh, Sperry and from Honeywell that had been talking to him, and uh, they were coming and visit him, and they didn't say they were working on a computer, and they ended up stealing a lot of his ideas, and they built the ENIAC computer, and um, and uh, and he was off, he was off working for the Naval Ordnance Office, working on naval sonar systems, and he just sort of lost track of it, but it turned out that. Um, that the school found out that uh, that the ENIAC principals had filed for a patent, and they protested the patent. It went to court, and it turned out that the judge said that they could not patent this because it was based on exact principles that had been demonstrated in the ABC machine, the Anisoff Berry computer, and so he got. Ultimately, he got credit for creating the first digital computer, all electronic, but he made no money on the deal at all. In November 13, 1990, John Vincent Atanasoff was awarded the National Medal of Technology by George H.W. Bush. In, uh, he died, Atanasoff died, uh, June 15, 1995, in Maryland. He, he's a local boy huh. and uh, after, after a long sickness. So... There you go. Everything you want to know about the father of the first digital computer. There you have it. Hope you're paying attention because you can turn knowledge into food coming up when we play the pop quiz. Coming up on Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, 1077 FM HD 2, southwest of Washington, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I love this virtual audience. It's so, uh, they're so well behaved. They are indeed. So this is not simply a radio show. This is a classroom of the airways, and we want to assess whether the class has been learning anything with the pop quiz. And if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get two tickets to fine dining at one of our dining rooms when they open after the pandemic. And you'll also get an A-plus for today's show. Earlier in the show, I talked about John Vincent Atanasoff. He, of course, is the father of the digital computer. Now, this is the question. Where was John Vincent when he came up with the basic fundamental ideas on how to design this computer, writing it down quickly, and then going back to get a grant. All right. If you know the answer to today's question, pick up the phone, give us a call. Dialing from west to the Rockies is 877-936-9333. If you're standing knee-deep in a frost-covered pile of fish scales east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're drinking bourbon in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else anywhere else may call us on the international line. Sanitized 14 minutes ago with Clorox wipes, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Okay, let's talk about that secret button that Apple added to your iPhone. Yes. When they released the iOS 14, which is the latest version of the iPhone software, it included a feature called the back tap. Now, the back tap turns the entire back of your phone into a giant touch-sensitive button, and you can either double tap it or triple tap it to trigger specific functions on your phone. Now they slipped in the settings for BackTap into the accessibility menu. Now it's to give people, uh, users, more options for interacting with their device. 
Now, the BackTech op options allow you to do, it could open the app switcher, it could open the notification menu, it could open the control center, it could, you could scroll through an app or a web page, it could trigger Siri or, Siri or it could take a screenshot. You decide what you want to do. It's easy to activate it. What you do, you go to accessibility and then you click on touch controls and then you scroll down to the bottom, this is called back tap, you, you tap it on and then you can program the double tap and the single tap or the double tap or the triple tap to whatever you want. It'll have a list of activities that you could tap. Now what I've done, I programmed the double tap so it brings up Siri. You know, I hate it. I mean, I'm going, walking along, I say, hey, Siri. And I, you know, now I just double tap the back of my phone and I can talk to Siri. I don't have to, you know, screech out, hey, Siri, all the time. And so I really enjoy this double tap feature. It's very, very convenient. Excellent. All right, Doc, we got somebody who'd like to play the quiz. Let's, uh, okay. let us uh, do this here. Let's go to line one. Hello, Ken, calling us from yeah, Laurel, Maryland. Dr. Schertz. Ken. Earlier in the show, I talked about John Vincent Atanasoff. Where was he and what was he doing when he came up with the ideas for that first digital computer? He was uh, drinking bourbon at a roadhouse. That is correct. Correct. Excellent Very work, good. Ken. Hang on a second here. We're going to send you back over to uh, Andrew, and he will take your information, and uh, we'll send that prize out to you. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, southwest of D.C. now on 107.7 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County, we're on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Doc, you there? Yeah, I'm still here. Can you hear okay, me? Okay, I can hear you now, yeah. Okay. So, I've been sitting in the bunker all week oh. and listening to the heated, I would say heated, 
discourse relating to politics. Uh-huh. People yelling at each other, but nobody's listening. Yeah. And I started thinking about the kind of things that we teach in school uh, on how to deal with this. And there are a couple of areas that I'd like to discuss because I think these principles will help you get along with people and communicate with people who actually you may disagree with, but you don't have to be disagreeable. Now, the first one is the Harvard Negotiating Project. Uh, this this was, uh, you know, this was uh, done, this project was very active in the late 70s, early 80s. And the, the people that, that actually worked on the Harvard Negotiating Project wrote a book, Getting to Yes, Negotiating Agreement Without Giving In. It's a great book. It's only about, you know, it's very thin. It's about a you know, quarter inch thick. And it's, you know, you can read it in, you know, a couple of hours, but it's a fantastic book. And these are the ideas. You don't negotiate over position. You try to understand the reason why people advocate the position that they have. So here are a couple of, here's a couple of examples. The first example was in a library, and there was a window. And there were two students sitting in the library, and one student would go to the window, and he would open it up. A minute later, the other student would go to the window and shut it. Then the first student would open it up. The second student would shut it. Finally, the librarian came over and wanted to find out what was going on. Now, if you would negotiate over position, uh, the librarian would say, well, you want it all the way open, you want it all the way close, so let's compromise. We'll make it halfway. We'll open it halfway. That is the wrong approach. So what the librarian did, because she was skilled in the Harvard Negotiating Project, she asked the first student, why do you want the window open? He said, well, I'm hot. It's just burning up in here. Then they went to the second student. They said, why do you want the window closed? He said, because whenever the window is open, it blows all the papers off my desk, and I have trouble doing my work. So once the librarian understood the issue, she went into the next room and opened the window. That cooled down the place, and there was no wind. So there's an example of negotiating on the why rather than on the position. Mm-hmm. Now, the, I mean, this is a great way to proceed. There, the, the other example, this, this, by the way, this negotiating project was used by Jimmy Carter to, uh, to get the peace accord back between Egypt and Israel. Now, if you remember, they were Israel had taken over the Sinai, which is just right across this, the Suez Canal, and uh, and they were occupying the Sinai, and Egypt wanted it back, and uh, and Egypt said, uh, well, we can't, and so Egypt wanted to keep it. it, Egypt wanted it back, and Israel wanted to keep it. So the negotiator, so if you would like have done negotiating position, they would say, okay, well, why don't you give back? half of the Sinai to Egypt, and you keep the other half, Israel. But instead, they asked the simple question to Israel, why do you need the Sinai? They said, we need to have the Sinai because we don't want to have tanks looking at us right over the Suez Canal ready to invade Israel. And they went to Egypt, and they said, Egypt, why do you want to have the Sinai? They said, we want the Sinai because it's part of our cultural heritage. It's who we are. The pharaohs were here. If we lose that land, we've lost our national identity. It's important to us. So the so Jimmy Carter's negotiator said, "Okay, this is what we're going to do. 
because it's important to the heritage of Egypt. We're going to give back the Sinai to Egypt, but it will be demilitarized. There can be no tanks on it, no military equipment at all. And Egypt agreed to that, and Israel agreed to that, and we had the, the Camp David Accords. So this is an example of negotiating to yes by simply listening to the other person. And we've got to do more and more of that going forward. We also teach critical thinking at Stratford, and critical thinking has something called breadth, where you uh, actually, when you're debating with someone and trying to think critically about someone, if you are, if you, if you think you're the only one who's right, and that what your belief is truth and nothing else is true, then you're viewed as being narrow-minded. But if you have the ability to look at a problem through the eyes of another and try to understand it through their eyes, then you have breadth. You're broad-minded. And so when two people disagree, they should stop arguing and they should ask the other person, why, why do you believe the way you do? What experiences have brought you to that point? I want to understand the problem through your eyes. And you just listen to them without arguing. And then they do the same to you. And it's amazing. Once you understand a problem through the eyes of another, solutions suggest themselves. So these two lessons, I think, could help bring down the uh, screaming in our political discourse. And I would hope that more and more of us could do that. Okay. Now let's talk about the tip of the week. How to back up your photos to the cloud. Now, you know, I've, I've, I've actually gone into the drink with, uh, with, my, uh, with my iPhone. I've been out canoeing. One time my iPhone was put in the washing machine because somebody wanted to wash my bathrobe and they were trying to be proactive and my phone was in the pocket. So I've lost iPhones due to water damage. Yes, you often. have. And the thing is, but I've never lost a picture. That's because I've always made certain that my uh, photos were backed up to the cloud. Now, the good news is the iPhone, but you have to tell it you want it to back up to the cloud. So the iPhone has settings on it. You can simply open up your settings on the iPhone, and then you can tap on iCloud, and then you can tap on Photos and say, I want to back up my photos to the cloud. And, uh, and, and then what, and it'll, it'll take a while to, to back up all your photos initially, but after that, every time that you take a photo, it'll be backed up to the cloud. That's why I've never lost a picture. Now, the Android's got the same feature. It'll, it'll back up to the, to the cloud, to the Google Cloud, and you simply open the Photos app, sign in, and then tap on the account, on the account photo of, of you or your initials. And then you go to photo settings and you simply back up and sync. Once you do that, your Android phone will back up to the cloud. Now there's a, something else. Now, now you, they each give you a certain amount of free storage, but then if you want to get more storage, and you probably will need more storage, it might cost you 99 cents a month, depending on how many pictures you have. Now, there's another option. It's totally free. If you're an Amazon Prime user, you can have unlimited full resolution photo storage uh, to the cloud. All you have to do is download the Amazon Photo app. You download the Amazon Photo app, either your iPhone or the Android phone, and then you simply then log into your Amazon Prime account 
and say, I want to upload the photos, It'll, everything will upload. So that's the tip of the week. Make certain your photos are protected and always uploaded to the cloud. All right. Now, let's go to something that, uh, uh, you know, for Halloween. Yes. You want to do that now, Jim? I think we should. Okay. Here's the thing. And we have appropriate music. Every Halloween, I always like to do something special. So tonight, I'm going to make a glow-in-the-dark Halloween drink. You now are. This glow-in-the-dark Halloween drink is going to be, it's going to glow green. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, this is how you do it now, you know, and, and of course, you need a black light for this. So you, you can buy a, a fluorescent black light and you can buy them anywhere. Probably go to Walmart or whatever. You can probably get it at Walmart today. You uh -huh. get a black light. You know what you do. Oh, yeah. It turns out that tonic water will will glow blue. Under the black. It'll glow blue? It'll glow blue, tonic water, under a black light. Huh. Vitamin B, vitamin B, or specifically thiamine, will glow yellow under a black light. <laughs> if you mix yellow and blue together, you get green. And that's the color we want. We want green. So here's the drink. It's basically a screwdriver. <laughs> you take three ounces of tonic water. This gives you the blue. Right. You take three ounces of Fresca, which gives you a little sweetness. Two ounces of vodka. I guess that's going to be a stiff drink, not a vodka. Oh, a yes. And a half. Two ounces of vodka. You take you take half an ounce of orange juice, and then you add, then you grind up a vitamin B complex pill. You just like you can you can get vitamin B complex. You grind it up into powder. You take about a fourth of the powder and you stir it into the drink, and that gives you, of course, the vitamin B or thiamine that will glow yellow. So you've got the blue and the yellow together, and that's going to give you green. And you can enjoy your uh, screwdriver, which glows green under the black light, for your Halloween drink. Where in the and world you do you find a Fresca? I don't know. I I, I think I'd skip the Fresca. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What well, would you? Uh, I guess you could use anything, like a Sprite could, or whatever. You, I don't you, know. You, uh, basically, you just need the vodka. And yes, the you do. And, you, and the and the and the vitamin B. And you, can, you can have any other filler that you want. Vitamin and <laughs> oh my. Yep, I know where your mind is. I know what you'll be uh -huh. having for uh, for Halloween. That's what I, I am planning to do. That absolutely. Treat so and treat. Yeah, that's right. So Send let's, us let's talk about zooming like a pro. Yes. You know, I've been using Zoom a lot for, for other things, and, and there are certain things that you can do that are pretty interesting. I'll just run through a few of these things that'll, that are kind of fun. You can change your background. You can pick a picture in the background, like if you were at the beach or you were, you got the Eiffel Tower in the background, or they also have, you know, some specific backgrounds that they have provided within Zoom, or you can upload your own image, and you can, you can make that as your background. Now, in order for it to work, because it's using screen subtraction, you need something like a green screen in the back. So you could just sit in front of a plain wall, that would be all right. If you want to make it perfect, you just you just drop a green screen. So as long as you've got a uniform background, this works pretty well. Now there's another pretty interesting trick. You know how you know you want to mute yourself during the call so you don't get all this feedback and it's always hard to find the mute button. There's something within Zoom that's pretty useful. You can use the space bar Press the space bar to mute, press the space bar to unmute. So it's very easy to mute and unmute with the space bar. I just discovered that. Now, you can turn on the beauty filter. 
Now, now what I what I decided, what I learned, I just got a I just got an HD camera for my Zoom calls. Uh-huh. And you know what I discovered with an HD camera? What? I have to shave before the Zoom call. Yeah. I mean, all of the all the TV people that once they went to HD, they realized they really look bad on HD, and they've got they've got to you know puff up, they got to you know put on some makeup, yeah, you look, shave. You look like you got so astroturf now, on your face. I know. So now with this HD camera, I've got to shave. But now, if I don't quite shave well enough, I can touch up my appearance. And so they, they have something called touch, Zoom's Touch Up My Appearance feature. You turn it on and you start your video, and it will kind of smooth things out and make you look better. So I, I think a lot of the women at Stratford use this Touch Up My Appearance, especially for the morning Zoom calls. Now, you can also uh, set up a waiting room. Now, this is, you know, you've heard about Zoom bombing. People just come into your Zoom meeting and they bomb it because there's no password protection, just a link. But if you have a um, if you have a waiting room, they can only get into the waiting room, and you as host let them into the meeting. So a waiting room really protects you against Zoom bombing. So now at Stratford, we always use the waiting room, and we only admit people into the into the uh, into the meeting who are authorized. Another thing you can do another thing you can do with Zoom is you can have breakout rooms for smaller group discussions. You can set up the breakout rooms. And you can actually assign specific people to the breakout rooms, or you can let them choose which breakout room they want to go to themselves. You can, and you simply go to account settings and under the meetings tab, set up breakout room. This is really useful. We use this a lot for our class ex- exercises. We're going to have classroom discussions or group work. We have the breakout. And I, I know there was, a, I heard of one church that actually they would have Sunday services and then they would break small groups of people together into breakout rooms, you know, to sort of talk and socialize after the church service. You can share your screen, which is really useful, as long as the uh, meeting administrator allows participants to share their screen. You simply, down at the bottom, there's something called share, you click on it, and whatever is on your screen, everybody else can see. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. We'd also like you to go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu, and tell them that you heard about the programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.